This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Uh, Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Good morning, good morning. Professor Ward Scott here in the Manly Warthog Command Center in the Melton Law Studio, Melton Law, with 50 years of experience. The only official law part, firm partner of the Florida Gators, Melton Law, won't back down. And remember, crime prevention, worry less with crime prevention security systems by preventing package theft with a doorbell camera. You can contact them today at cpss.net. And of course, our good buddy, the law office of Maurice T. McDaniel, our country attorney who is sponsoring our mugshots, which you get to see along with 45,000 other people every month. So people are very interested in who's doing what to whom, where and when and how and why. So we appreciate all those people. And of course, all of our other sponsors who are with us and our donors, as Style Cuts, who is the official barber, if you will, or hairstylist of the Ward Scott Files. I'm my good buddy R&R Construction with Lance Lunger, on the spot cleaners, great people, great, great people. I'll leave somebody out, so I better stop while I can, because at the bottom of the hour, we do put up a... Uh, a more thorough uh, conversation about all this. But uh, we've got our special day today. You know, the Ward Scott Files very much wants to be involved constantly with the arts. Uh, I think the arts civilizes, I hope. We were just discussing before we went on the air uh, with our good guest today, Kim Tuttle of Dance Alive National Ballet, the dilemma that many people who are, so to speak, innocent uh, victims of this, not the people of Ukraine, which is heartbreaking, but the actual athletes and dancers who come from Russia and Belarus who have found themselves in the crosshairs of this international situation. And it's going to have mixed reactions to it. Of course, Dance Alive National Ballet is really an international ballet. As uh, we'll speak with our host, our, our guest here in a moment, we've got dancers from Russia, Ukraine, uh, all over the place. And so it's a difficult situation to navigate, but the arts hopefully can civilize and restore us to some sense of, of decency and civility. We certainly sponsor that ballet because we tremendously believe that this is where athletics and arts intersect. And there's no other place where it does that. The, the stretching just alone, I was discussing this with a fellow in the gym the other day as I am in there trying to bring my youth back, which is, you know, of course, ultimately futile, but you try. And, um, <laughs> We were talking about the, 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 the fact that none of us really is as flexible as he or she should be. And I started talking about how much time the dancers spend simply maintaining flexibility. So we've got a lot of stuff to talk about here with our good friend, Kim Tuttle, who is the real dynamo along with her sister, Judy Skinner, behind Dance Alive National Ballet, has been for over 50 years. So we want to help you get to know them as much as possible. Once a month, we do have a chat. And sometimes we have the dancers, sometimes we have our friends here in person. So, Kim, what's going on since I saw you last? It's been a while, and uh, we need an update on how you're doing with the uh, ballet and anything you want to run down that list. Sure. Well, I was just thinking that sometimes we just chat about uh, the people that we know in the company, but some of your, your viewers might not know that we are a touring company. We've toured over 17 states. We've toured Costa Rica, Cuba, Russia, the Ossetia area of Russia, um, and what was in, and Bulgaria. And we have dancers that are from China, Russia, Ukraine, Japan, Cuba, um, Brazil, we've had dancers from uh, Venezuela in the past, Bulgaria. So, you know, everything that's happening right now in Russia and the Ukraine is very important to us. And um, we have dancers that have, that have been uh, with us that were Ukrainian and Russian, many. And then we have guest artists 
you may remember Sergei Sidorsky, who's a Ukrainian, who retired his last season was here, um, and his wife. And um, then, of course, Alex and Julia, who were here. And then Oksana Maslova, who's a choreographer and is going to be coming to do our Swan Lake. Uh, the emails I get from them are just um, so, so horribly sad. Uh, no one understands, really. None of Nobody here understands why they're just being destroyed. It's just a, uh, it's kind of like a, a nightmare that they can't get out of. I have one, one man that I have been planning on hiring and he's touring the United States. He's with the Russian Ballet, which is a touring company, not a full company. It's just, they hire people. It's like a pickup company. And so he has a very short term, you know, uh, contract with them. And he was planning on joining us next year. And he's principal in Kiev, uh, Russia. And uh, his uh, visa expired with the com their company April 11th. And he said, I just don't know what to do. My son is in the Ukraine. So if he goes to the Ukraine in order to get a visa, he will have to go to the American embassy in the Ukraine or go to a another country. Those things are very complicated. And um, the, of course, now the embassies are over, overrun with requests. It's going to be very difficult for him to, to do this. It's um, horribly, horribly sad. It's really consternation. Consternation at it. Getting a little bit of echo. You have your uh, machine on in any way, shape, or form? No. Nope. Um, I uh, don't know how that's happening. Okay, maybe it's not happening now. I thought I heard it. Uh, production may have... Um, one button open, it shouldn't be open, but I don't hear it now. But uh, uh, it's really consternation at its worst. Uh, the the whole European world has been, it seems, topsy-turvy for a for hundred years, if you think about it. When you think about first World War One, which they didn't number, and then all of a sudden they're two, so they had to go back and number them. That's crazy. So now we got a two, and then the, if you have a one and a two, in rhetorical strategies, we always say, well, if you got a one and two, you, you should have a three. So now we have begun to call this a beginning of a World War III, which, God forbid, we hope we're wrong. Uh, but that's the way the human mind organizes experience, sadly, and makes its own productions come, uh, predictions come true. I uh, hope not. But, you know, it's, it's, um, it's something that we have to talk about, Kim, because, as you just alluded to, it affects the dancers. It affects the tennis players. One of the issues that's very controversial now, as you know, we were talking about it before we went on the air, is uh, do these players deserve to get in, caught in the middle of this? Um, and, of course, there's always the possibility that those players could leave Russia and renounce their ties to Russia. Martina Nabatilova did that. Maria Sharapova did that. Uh, there are a number of people. And we have people we know who renounced their citizenship in their home country, right, and came oh, yeah. to become citizens. So they're, you know, when they when they say that, you know, it's it's um, if it's if that's the way it is, then there's some choices that have to be made about the profession. So um, the conversation, of course, is developing as we know, but we need to talk about it because it affects us and uh, the dancers even that are attracted to come here. And, and I appreciate you openly talking to it to the extent that you can. Uh, some of the things, as you know, we, we don't want to talk about because it affects uh, uh, our audience. It should needs to know that these people have family back in these countries. And so mm -hmm. they I remember interviewing one of the dancers in, who shall remain unnamed, who still had family in one of the countries and said, you know, I just really want to talk about that because my mother or my father or whatever is still there and they'll come and knock on her door. So uh, it's it's an oppressive situation. But. Um, hopefully we'll be able to remain a kind of uh, torch of freedom, if you will, with the Dance Alive National Ballet. It, it, you know, it's amazing. I like for maybe you talk about this if you can, how you guide all these people into blending together with their individual countries and their individual stories, but they all come together as a team. And, you know, that's the big thing about coaching. You know, we're looking at it in the other sports. Can this guy make this a team? And you've always been able to make it a team, as far as I can tell. Maybe I'm not privy to some of the problems you had. You know, I was talking with a friend yesterday about that, how it's very complex being a dancer because you are so focused on yourself and your work. 
and you must be to develop at the level that you are when you're a professional, but it's also a team. So how do you balance your personal efforts and your personal dreams and your personal desires with that of the whole? Very challenging thing. I'm sure, I'm sure football players have the same kind of thing. You know, you got the star quarterbacks and the star this and then, but how do you um, pull it together as a team? And um, we're really fortunate. And I'm very careful about bringing people on that understand that, that that's the way we have to work. We have to work for the best of the, the whole without losing the individual. It's, it's a, I think it's a, it's a good question and a challenging question. And I think it comes from the top. I think, you know, you have to have someone that believes that both aspects are important. For instance, the dancers I have are all very high level dancers and they've all won, you know, international competitions and, um, it is Gainesville. It's a small city, but that doesn't diminish their their level. And uh, they come with the understanding that it's a small company, that you have to participate in the organization like a family. Right now, it's a small building. It's not a huge building. Of course, we're in the process of purchasing land and building, but um, it's it's a very it's a very important thing, and. When you're dealing with the arts, the humanity of it is your primary uh, leader, guide, uh, whatever you want to call it, humanity. You have to never, never lose your sense of humanity, never lose your sense of inspiration. Um, and that, that's a kind of a, almost, almost like a moral guideline. You know, when you're in an organization, it's very easy to get just, it's just a business or it's uh, political in the sense that there are politics within every organization. Um, but, you, you know, the heart of it, at the heart of it is the humanity. And I think if you always keep that in mind, that the whole organization feels that. You know, interestingly enough, in almost every group, there's a scapegoat, right? <laughs> somebody that everybody looks at, they've done something wrong, and everybody looks at them. Or then somebody else does something wrong, or... Um, something, I don't know, it tends to be a scapegoat. And I recognized that early in my career that, you know, as the leader, you have to eliminate that, um, that aspect of your group or it will turn into everybody biting at each other, you know, and it will diminish the, the whole organization. So you do it by example. You know, when you hear people say, oh, so-and-so does this, they're not this, that, and that, you need to like uh, calm that down and say something positive about it so that, you're kind of leading by example. Um, yeah, it, 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 you have to maintain your moral um, compass. You just have to, if you want to have success. And I think that's one of the reasons that we've been so successful. I surround myself with people that can guide me in that way. People like you on the board that will not let me slip, <laughs> uh -huh. or Gary, um, yeah. our president. You know, I have mentors, you know, artistic mentors and um, moral guides, I guess you might say. Um, it all comes down to that moral compass, I think. Well, as a board member, which you alluded to a moment ago, I can tell you, I can tell the audience, share a little bit as well. We work very hard to keep politics out of the arts. Yep. Um, it's, uh, it's a, if you're not careful, as you know, the current cultural fads, want to uh, attach themselves to something that is um, really not the proper forum for their attachment, if you will. I'm trying to be delicate about this. And they want to embed in the, uh, the organizations quite often uh, some particular acts they have to grind. And uh, I know that you know that I'm not going to let that happen if I can help it. Uh, and, you know, here on this show, it's a different world. It's a different forum. I'll tackle all kinds of issues because they're all out there to be discussed openly. I don't believe in censorship. But when it comes to the arts, there's a mission, um, there's a vision, and there is a definition um, that we got to maintain, we've got to stay with. It saddens me a great deal to see libraries, for example, be purged because of a great work which may have a word that's fallen out of fashion 
Uh, and so they go through, you know, the, the political aspect of our, our lives, goes through these libraries and, you know, removes them. Um, and it's, it goes, you know, once upon a time, it was anything that was anti-Catholic. And James Joyce had a tough time writing about that because he was Irish. And, you know, he wrote uh, uh, really the uh, portrait of the artist as a young man, which is a classic about this. If you ever want to read the literary treatment of this, the best treatment probably is by James Joyce, a portrait of the artist as a young man. And basically what the young man in that story comes to realize is that while I've been raised in a particular a religious culture, in his case, it was, of course, Catholicism. As an artist, I must distance myself from all of that so that I can see how that fits into the total continuum of people's experiences. It's a tremendous work. And he said in the end of the work, if I can remember the last line, I go forth to forge the words in the smithy of my soul. And, you know, that's basically what he does. He becomes an artist with words. The thing that gets me about the dancers is they are prohibited from using words and they do it with their bodies from facial expressions all the way down to the, the way they move their feet. It's amazing, is it not, Kim? It's inspiring. I mean, I get inspired every day. I look at these dancers that are putting their heart and soul, every, every molecule of their being into both their work and their expression. And, you know, um, all of your emotions are on your sleeve when you're a dancer. Now, you're very vulnerable. You're out there, you know, on stage. Everybody's watching everything, watching your shoulders, watching if you've gained a little weight, watching if you've you're too skinny, watching if you're off a little bit. I mean, you are just on display and they are out there for themselves. We know that, but also for the people that are watching. It's a real two-way street, the audience and, and the individual. And like I said, I have so much respect for dancers and they inspire me every day. No question. Kept you young. <laughs> yeah, it's kept me. It's kept me purposeful. A purposeful. There you go. Yeah, it's well, kept me purposeful. And Judy, my sister, both of us were, you know, we're older and we're getting on the verge of retiring. Um, of course, all we want to do is cut down. We don't want to cut out. You're not going to retire. You know. <laughs> well, you know, you get to a certain age and just, you know, you have to stop at some point. But you know, you can find other other ways of um, uh, being purposeful. And, and by being purposeful, you know, we're, because we're at the, the um, kind of the head of the uh, arts, the art, the cultural world uh, in Gainesville, where some of the few people that are the leaders in the arts world, um, you know, we feel an obligation uh, to maintain our legacy um, and, to com con and to maintain the collaboration that we have with the other artists. For instance, Raymond Chobaz, who has been our conductor, uh, for our orchestra for many years is retiring from the University of Florida. And we are trying to figure out ways that we can continue working with him. Um, Stella's song is the same way, she's a composer. We always are, are, are trying to figure out ways to continue working with these artists. Alola Haskins, uh, and you name it. You know, Margaret Tolbert. It's the Hippodrome, Bobby Robbins. It's a very collaborative world. Annie Collier, just a very collaborative world. I find it interesting. I just got I just got an email from Joy Banks. Uh, we we participated in a program that the Cade put on last year with with uh, oh I can't remember the program, but um, it was a thousand voices and um, Duke Ellington. It was a Duke Ellington celebration, and there were choirs from all over, every color, every age, every makeup. Um, dancers, ditto. Uh, it was a, it was a, you know, Phoebe Cade Miles has a, a sense of unity to her, and she encourages that. And uh, it was one of the most extraordinary experiences. And I just got a, an, an email from Joy Banks, who pretty much organized it last year. And um, you know, that's what artists do. I find it interesting that people like to say that we artists are competitive, and you know, businesses are competitive, but artists are not competitive uh, in, the, in the grand scheme of things. Every individual, of course, 
uh, wants to have their parts, their roles on stage. And that's what they'd spend all their lives training for. And of course, they're going to, there's going to be some competition for individual roles. But overall, I would say that artists are, are as collaborative as anybody, as team-oriented as anybody. Um, so it's a great world to be in, I have to tell you, Ward. I'm just so glad that my parents, my father was president of the Gainesville Gas Company. He, bought, he brought natural gas into the state of Florida. And... Uh, but he was a singer and uh-huh. he went to St. Olaf's college. He sang on the Gary Moore show and sang with Paul Robeson and then decided when he got married, he needed to, you know, find something that was a little bit more stable uh, for a family. And he went into the gas company business, but he had a stroke and uh, he had short term memory loss. And when you would ask him what he did for a living, he would say, well, I was a tenor, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. to, to his dying days. You know, the music in him was the heart, his heart, the heart of his of his being. And um, my mom was a dancer, danced with Ruby Keeler, Donald O'Connor, you know, just on the peripheral sides with not with them, per se. But um, and then she taught debate in English at the University of Minnesota and taught here at the University of Florida, very ahead of her time. So they both had other things they did beside the arts. But. I would say when you're an artist, it just, it consumes you in the best of ways. And I'm so glad that I, I was fortunate enough to um, be born into that. And I think Judy feels the same way too. And I, I think anybody that's born into it is wonderful, um, wonderfully happy, wonderfully lucky. Um, but those people, I remember Mary and Kathy who grew up in, 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 in Gainesville, um, he and he became very famous. Uh, did Ain't Misbehaving on Broadway, I believe, and and uh, produced and directed Ten More Tenors. Um, he said that he learned how to dance. He grew up in Kennedy Estates, and he learned to dance in New York by looking in the windows of of uh, dance studios and tapping outside. You know, he wasn't one of the lucky ones that was born to it, but he had. I mean, how can you not just have so much respect for the determination that must have taken to become what he is by virtue of his his singular efforts? Just amazing, amazing man. So I feel talking to you. I'm getting a little bit of feedback, but it disappears. Seems after I say a couple of words, it might be someone that might have a speaker up there in your office. I'm not sure. Anyway, I'm proceeding now. I don't hear it. I, I want to offer this also as, a, you know, I was trained in writing. Uh, that was um, how I came to the arts. And the uh, Flannery O'Connor, who, by all great opinions, feel that she's one of the greatest short story writers we've ever had in the country, the world, really, Flannery O'Connor from Milledgeville, Georgia. And she was asked one time by a group of students that uh, invited her to come and talk to them about why she wrote. And she was, had a very hard, harsh voice. Uh, she had lupus. She didn't live a long time. And she was um, crippled much of the life she led and on crutches. And, and uh, she was a tough lady on herself and on her writing and on her standards. And she said to the students, she said, uh, asking me why I write is about like asking a fish why it swims. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And a lot of them don't understand that. This fish swims in order to oxygenate its blood, its gills. If it, not, if it doesn't move, it can't live. So she's saying, if I don't write, I can't live. It's not a choice. It's not something that I sit down and go to work uh, and clock in and clock out of. And it, it's, um, it, it is a life event. And there's never, uh, I was talking to, Truman Capote about this one time, as you know, I knew him and, uh, and, 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 and John Knowles who wrote a separate piece and I was in Long Island, you know, having a coffee with him and, uh, and, and we were talking at that time, there was a lot of controversy about the fact that Capote was writing a book called Answered Prayers. And in it, he had written about Jacqueline Kennedy and all these stars that hung around him, you know, and he'd used them in this, biography practically it was 
And they were criticizing him for being so open about what they had, the experiences they had. And they said, well, what did they think they were sitting with? They were sitting with a writer. You know, <laughs> Everything is material. Don't they understand that? And when you're with a writer, every moment, every single thing is material. And you just uh, think about it and absorb it. And, if, and as a saying in writing, you don't uh, borrow it. You steal it. And, and you, you just incorporate it into your presentation, your narrative. And I've never forgotten that. And we all chuckled, laughed about that, that who were these people who thought that they were having a conversation with a writer and the writer wasn't a writer? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, every, 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 I listen to music all the time and I always see movement to it, always. It's just music and movement are intertwined for me. Well, you and I both knew Tom Petty as a young one. Mm -hmm. And uh, you knew him around town, I'm sure, when he was a young one. Yeah, they a whole bunch of them, you know. Um, yeah. They rehearsed in my basement. <laughs> <laughs> you my know, I remember basement. that story. But, I, I, you know, people ask me about Petty, and um, he was only had one thing on his mind. I mean, it wasn't that he didn't pay attention to other things as well, but there was no question that he was going to be in for the long haul, uh, bumps and bruises or whatever in the world. He was not turning back. That's what turned him on. That's what he floated his boat, all these cliches that we use. And that's the same way with the dancers. I, I wonder, you know, I see some of the people in the, in, the, in, the, in the group getting older now and how they will handle. It's tough, as you know, to get older and, and lose this skill and that skill. And do we have any way of absorbing that kind of talent in this art so that they don't go away? Can, is there a place for people like that to come in and re-engage and re-teach? There's always a place for people, but not everyone um, wants to do that. You know, mm. there are a lot of people that don't want to go on in the dance world. So it's really an individual choice. Um, some people like Andy Valadon, who's the assistant artistic director, and he's 50 years old. And on stage, he does... He can do he can outdo anybody at any time in certain areas, technically, physically, just an amazing, amazing dancer, amazing uh, force on stage, very charismatic. And he has a lot of interests, but uh, he says, this is what I know and this is what I would like to do. I, I love he loves the technical air part of theater, you know, uh, sets and and, you know, organizing guys to to work backstage and. Uh, loves using his hands and doing woodwork and um but he loves teaching company class he loves being about that's what a ballet master is they teach the company class and they do a lot of rehearsals he's at his best doing that he's not really interested in teaching students he really loves teaching company class and working with with dancers uh in the classics more than anything else and there are other people like beatrix povoas who really loves teaching children she loves really? teaching three, four, five, six-year-olds. Yeah, she loves it. You know, and then there's Felipe Teixeira, who he's, he's nice teaching all right. But, oops, I'm sorry. Let me get rid of that. But he said that um, when he, he does Dancing with the Stars, he is a wonderful uh, ballroom dancer. And he wins every year. And every year he's, he says, I want to do this next year. I'm going to do this. I want to win next year. And he said, Kim, you know, when I'm finished dancing, I think I would like to go into ballroom. And so, you know, a lot of people, people have different things. Like Rachel Ridley is, um, what is she? Behave occupational therapist mm -hmm. on the side. You know, Michelle and Galingo uh, went into hairdressing. So people have different different desires a lot of them want to be involved in dance a lot of them don't so it's it's a very personal choice but they don't all have to be they all have to find a profession when they quit and that's the problem you know because they may not want to go into a dance area but they all they have to go into something and what's fortunate about Gainesville is we have both Santa Fe and the University of Florida here and and there are also so many online universities now most of the the dancers are taking courses online so they have something under underneath the belts you know in order to go on after they finish dancing some people like to dance forever like andy or chu remember chu danced till he was 60 years yeah. old 
He was amazing. He was one of a kind. Yeah, Andy's one of a kind too. Um, but there's some dancers, especially the, the the Europeans and the Russians, they are trained to think that they're supposed to quit by the time they hit 40. And so obviously when they start approach start approaching 40, they they are kind of brainwashed into thinking they ought to be done. You know, and um, so that's part of their their history and it's just in their their pores to think they ought to be done by 40. Some dancers can keep on going. I mean, Bereshnikov kept on going. Uh, Fontaine kept on going till she was 60. They're just, it's so individual. You, you can't say any, it's very individual. So. Well, you've been, with us, you've been with us a half an hour. It's been a most fascinating half okay. hour. And uh, you're invited to stay more if you'd like, but I know you got a busy day ahead of you, but yeah. uh, you've been talking with Kim Tuttle and, she and her sister, Judy Skinner, are the, oh, everything there is to say about providing this community with the greatest and highest level of art and, and the form of dance for many, many years. It's a challenge for us and the community to keep it going. And for that reason, I, I, I am interested in, and have been on the board for a while because I, I'm a big supporter of the arts and, uh, uh, and, and my mother danced and uh, you know, pretty well known. And when she was 100 years old, I brought her to the Dancing with the Stars and she cut the rug out there to you ain't nothing but a hound dog. And uh, <laughs> so it was, just, it was just always in our family. She played the piano. Uh, my father was uh, state champion in the saxophone uh, in the day. And I don't know if you know this, but my father and his mother uh, played in a riverboat band along the Mississippi and the Golconda yeah. area. And that's wow. how they they made her living put my father through uh, schools he she played the piano she was blonde haired blue eyed he was very talented and they had this you know they played on these riverboats and you know their, their day it was all uh, benny goodman swing and um, mm -hmm. it, was, uh, it was that was the style of music so i remember all that and uh, uh so it was it was around but you know, my father, once um, the war came and he came back, never picked up an instrument and played it again. It was all about surviving and getting back into the swing of things, of making a living and, and trying to recover from the hardship of the war, you know. Well, thank Excellent. you, Lord. Thanks so much for coming on. We're talking with Kim Tuttle, we're going to take a break on the Ward Scott Files here in the Mellon Law Studio. And uh, we'll be right back after we thank our sponsors and our donors. So stay tuned, please. This is Ward Scott. And I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files gold sponsors are Maurice T. McDaniel, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, R&R Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.awardscottfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page, or call my friend, Freddie, at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Wardscott Files. And remember, if you like the show, Thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All bees poop. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Welcome back to Ward Scott Files. Professor Ward Scott here in the Warthog Manly Command Center inside the Melton Law Studio, Melton Law with 50 years of experience. They're the only official law firm partner of the Florida Gators. Melton Law won't back down. And 
we appreciate their support as we do uh, the rest of you all who uh, believe in a forum that provides quite an uh, open mic, if you will, for people to respond. Speaking of open mics, uh, tomorrow we're going to do again our open mic Friday. Uh, we'll turn on our phone line and we've already had a couple of people uh, email me and ask me where we're going to be taking calls. And I said, yeah, we'll take them on Friday. We'll see how this works out. Uh, we're looking actually for a sponsor for that phone line, which would be a wonderful way to make your business a well-known because every time we answer that phone line, we would say it was brought to you by such and such and such and such. So keep that in mind as you see us uh, use the phone line, hopefully increasingly. And we're certainly going to plan on using it tomorrow. We'll probably post something to that effect later today. The uh, other things locally to bring you up to date on is today, uh, there will be a negotiation that the public is invited to, in case you'd like to attend it, uh, between the uh, Police Benevolent Association Union and the Sheriff's Office over these contractual uh, sticking points, whatever you want to call them, um, that is going on apparently in um, between the sheriff and the sheriff's union. Now, I have some more information about where that is all standing. Um, the Right now, from the point of view of the sheriff, the um, sheriff has um, put in extra holidays, uh, new vehicle policy. Of course, that vehicle policy grandfathers in the people who already are using their vehicles, but changes it for the future, requesting that those vehicles be remain in Alachua County where the actual sheriff serves. That's my understanding of it. Um, they have also got increased educational benefits. Um, they have um, uh, uh, lots of things that have been offered to them that have not come out in the press that are going to be out there on the table today in case you wish to drop in on those conversations. The uh, ACS CO employees received a memorandum from the sheriff yesterday which um, went out, uh, I received a copy of that. So uh, we'll see how this all, all works out. There was in the Gainesville sunset today, something which I felt all along should have been uh, published or made known. It's not just, you know, that um, hiring people for Lachua County Sheriff's Office is a tough job. Hiring people for law enforcement is a tough job, period. And it's primarily because of the George Floyd incident. The George Floyd incident in Minneapolis, Minnesota, set back law enforcement enormously. Uh, you, you know, it, you know when it has it had a chilling effect on guys who want to go out and deal with all this stuff in the streets every day, when you've got people standing on the side, obviously who have a bias, they all have cameras, they all taunt you, uh, egg you on, call you names, spit on you, that sort of thing. And you got a bad guy down there who's got a rap sheet as long as his leg and is going to be back right on the street. As soon as you take him down to the courthouse, uh, the judge is going to adjudicate him and put him back out on the road and to do it all over again. Why would you want to put yourself uh, in that kind of line of duty is the question that I'm learning more and more of these uh, police organizations are facing. The uh, work is not the easiest work. It requires an enormous amount of training and courage and coolness under pressure. Uh, you, um, you just don't take it on lightly. It's a whole way of life. Many times, for example, in New York City, what you find, and I'm somewhat familiar with the guys in New York City because when I go to the U.S. Open, I usually hang out a little bit with them as heavily patrolled, as you might imagine, with the canines and the bomb squads and everything. And what you'll find uh, in New York City is often it's a family tradition that they become police officers. Um, this fellow, because they are in New York City, uh, that's where they grew up. They know the boroughs, they know the territories, they have precincts in different parts of the town. And that's what their granddaddy did. That's what their daddy did. And that's what they're doing. They're, they're almost a family of, of police officers. Now, that's not to say you don't have that here, but not probably to the extent that you do in New York City. And how do you build that type of uh, commitment to a profession when everybody's taken literally literal pot shots at you as well as figurative pot shots at you? And you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. It's uh, becoming increasingly difficult. I, I keep going back to one of the most disappointing moments in this community that I witnessed. You know, it's coming out that Black Lives Matter 
is a shady organization. The people at the top of it have uh, made off with money and, and made themselves fine homes. And, and you know, they had, you know, it's just, it's all in the news. I don't need to find a specific article for it. It's there. You can go research it and find it. Um, uh, it, it, you know, it is a violent organization in, 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 in that it has uh, been influential in causing inner city real violence uh, to a degree that certain parts of certain towns, neighborhoods have been destroyed. Uh, it has really been ramped up since the George Floyd incident, the defund the police. And the thing I was so disappointed to hear locally was our own sheriff at the time, Sadie Darnell marched in the Black Lives Matter parade that was here. And I, you know, I have heard so many law enforcement guys say to me, what in the world was she thinking? Black Lives Matter wants to kill us, the cops. They are absolutely out there saying kill the cops. And uh, she's marching with them in sympathy for that. We can't have that. I've always wondered what kind of effect that had on her overwhelming defeat as she re ran for office. Also, one of the very disappointing things to me was to see these University of Florida coaches, particularly Mullen, get out in the streets and march to this political uh, thing. It is absolutely a no-no in my book. If those student players want to go down and participate and they're not burning places down and participating in violence, and it is a civil protest that they want to organize. And I'm keeping my arms linked from it as a coach. Uh, but as long as it doesn't change the behavior of their uh, uh, actions on the field and they're still together as a team, I will probably put up with it. But the moment it has a negative impact on the team, uh, then it's, out, it's over. They're not going down there and do that. Uh, I think that was one of the big mistakes that Mullen made. And it showed up on the field. There was a lack of discipline on the field. I can't say that there's any research that shows there was a direct correlation, but I think I would not have done it as a coach. I would not have um, participated in it. Of course, this all began in, 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 in Mexico City in 72, if I recall correctly. No, 68, when the, uh, the fellows raised their right fist and protested the uh, uh, United States of America. Uh, as they stood on the podium as winners representing their country. Uh, uh, they, you know, and even back before that, Hitler interfered and didn't like Jesse Owen Black winning the 100-yard dash in the Olympics in uh, Germany in 1936. So it's a tough thing to do to be an athlete and run for a country. And then in some cases, like these guys in Mexico City, turn around and criticize the country that sent you there, that trained you, that supported you, and then you turn around, bite the hand, and feed you. That was the first time we saw that publicly. Then, of course, uh, uh, this blows up uh, with uh, Munich uh, when the Israelis and the Palestinians and that crowd uh, actually end up taking over uh, part of the athletes' dorms, and we have in this uh, hostage situation. Uh, I think I've got my timeline correct. Uh, it was a, a very unfortunate situation. I have a friend who went to the Olympics and, um, they, you know, it was just, it, it really cast off as, a, as, a, as an athlete, came in third in the high jump. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was really, of course, you had Frank Shorter winning the marathon. So some of them do come through it. Uh, but then in 76, I went to Montreal to watch the Olympics, and it was it had become an armed camp. Uh, it was military all over the place to protect the event from being disrupted by political interference. And I remember I went in to watch the weightlifting uh, competition. Uh, it was funny, you know, uh, it was very difficult to get into these venues, but in those days, yours truly here was evidently appeared to it looked like one of the Russian lifters because when I went to the door uh, to which the lifters that participants actually went, um, I was waved right in as if I were one of the uh, weightlifting contestants. I, appear, I guess I must have looked like them, but I don't think I did. Those guys really, really, <laughs> they, they, were, they were unique. But I sat in the stands with them where they sat as players and watched Alexis Kozevic 
Alexis Kozet, I can't say his last name, the super heavyweight champion of the world, and later met him backstage and, and, and shook hands with him. But uh, that was in 76. And it was then, after that, then I was still training with Track Club and these people here, and I knew them well, Marty DeCorey and all these people. And I'll be darned if uh, Carter didn't call off our participation in the Olympics in 1980. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm doing this all from memory without notes. So I think I'm correct in these dates and years. It gets a, the dusty dim light of, of, of retrospect. But uh, that was shocking because I knew what our guys had done since I worked out with them at the track. Uh, I knew a lot of them personally. I knew how difficult, particularly in track. In track, you're a finely, finely tuned instrument. You're dealing with hundreds of seconds. Uh, you're dealing with, uh, you know, the difference is just a, a, a footstep. And you really struggle to learn what is the, when you've overtrained or when you've undertrained or, and it's still a struggle. Even today, as I try to come back and recapture as much as my youth as I can, I, I push myself, but at the same time, I, I say to myself, hey, you know, have a little patience with yourself. You don't make the gains the way you once did as a younger person, just be satisfied that you can go there and participate in the exercise. So, uh, but in the 1980, all of a sudden, these guys, all their training, all their effort, all their dedication was wiped out because Carter, in protest against Russia, uh, didn't send our Olympic team. And it was over Afghanistan, as I recall. So here we go, fast forward, and we are now in 2022, and what has changed? Now we're looking at tennis. And Wimbledon, and I was talking with our guest just a moment ago, uh, off air before we went on the air, she had a lot of problem. My good friend, Kim Tuttle, rightfully so, had a lot of problems understanding why the individual athletes from Russia and Belarus were being excluded by Wimbledon from participating in uh, that tournament coming up uh, in June. Well, you have to remember something about how World War II got, got, got going. The Hitler was unchecked, unconfronted through apathy and the same sort of things you hear now. Well, we don't want to really upset Putin. Uh, maybe he'll come to his senses or maybe somebody internally will take care of him. And in other words, maybe somebody else will do it. Uh, and meanwhile, Hitler just took that as a sign of weakness went into the Champs-Élysées, went through the Arc de Triomphe, uh, Triomphe with his own people, took over Paris, and then tried to destroy London, tried to destroy it. And England doesn't, you don't mess with England. When you're an island and you've been fighting for your stability for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the Armada, fighting it out with Spain, um, you know, one of the things that people don't really know or haven't thought about or learned is the reason England won that battle with Spain is the most adept people at sea in those days. And the reason I know this is because I have a good friend who went to law school who did a, his paper on maritime law. In other words, what is the law at sea? And what happened with England is these great pirates were absolutely the best on the water. And Queen Elizabeth, as I recall, it was that first queen, um, pardoned her pirates and said, you guys can come home and I will not hold anything against you if you will captain my ships against the Spanish. And buddy, they said, that's a deal. And I learned this all from my good friend's research paper about maritime law, who took it all the way back to those days. And the rest is history. England survived and England's language is found on every nook and cranny of the world. It's the only language that is everywhere. There is not a place in this world where English has not been and is not still used in some way, shape or form. It's amazing when you think about that. And then when you think that uh, the King James Version decided let's make England England by making this Bible in English. So when you hear thou our father who art in heaven, you're hearing the English 
which is really uh, evolved from Old English and Middle English. Uh, and that was to keep the country strong and to keep its language strong because England understood if we don't take care of our language, we don't take care of our country. It drives some people nuts to have to hear when you make a call uh, the, the, in this country, which is English, you get a reply in at least two different languages, one, at least one different language. When this is, this is this country, and France is the same way. As I've said, if you're in Montreal or Montreal, uh, you don't, find, and you're talking with somebody who looks just like you, by that mean is European descent, and won't talk to you, it's because they're French and they're waiting for you or speaking English to speak French. Because they know if that language goes, their national identity goes. So this has is complicated and long history. And I remember I was thinking about this uh, a little bit today because more deeply, because I wanted to talk about it with you all from the perspective of being older and having lived a little bit longer, perhaps than many of you and been through a lot that perhaps you all haven't come through yet. But when I was in high school uh, in the late 50s, uh, I'll go ahead and date it. I graduated in 1959. Uh, we had a kid arrive in our class from Germany. And, you know, to be with us, to come to our school, you had to be darn sharp. We were a very, very high intellectual school. We had very bright people in our school. And that's what it was known for. 98% uh, of our graduating class went to college right upon graduation. And of that 98%, about 75% went to um, Yale or Harvard or someplace like that. So we were, I was always around very, very bright people. And in my own experiences, I was only 15 when I was a senior with them and they were like 18. So I was highly competitive about everything, just everything. And I and always enjoyed running with the fastest group I could run with. And there it was. Well, this fellow came in from Germany. And I remember the kids jumped on him right away because he was German. And they began to discuss with him the behavior of the Germans in uh, World War II. And then he defended himself. He said, listen, we would have won if we hadn't run out of fuel. Well, that was part of the whole idea was to go down there and cut off Rommel in the oil fields in the, in, in the Middle East. And of course, he said, we had jets and we were ready to use the jets if we could possibly get the fuel. And then we would have really taken care of England because that's who they were really trying to wipe out was England. And then when I went to work at a Martin Marietta missile factory, when I was working my way through school in Orlando on one of my trips away from the university to get uh, closer to home and make a little money before I came back to school, um, we, and I, I think I've told you the story, I was the uh, assistant uh, to the executive chef, and we fed the dignitaries that came to Martin Marietta Missile Factory. And I remember several times Dr. Werner von Braun there, who we stole from Germany. He was our rocket scientist engineer brainiac. Now, of course, Russia went in and tried to steal the others, and Russia stole some. So here we are in a situation where the world looks to be repeating exactly what happened when it sat on its hands and let Hitler work its way towards uh, England by going through France and then getting the place where it could try to wipe out London. And England is not going to stand for that. It's my, it's my way of understanding them banning from Wimbledon any player from Russia or Belarus, okay? And it's going to make a statement. Now, of course, caught up in it is Mendeleev and, and uh, uh, these people who are players. But you have to remember, Maria Sharapova defected from Russia. There are many who said to heck with it. I was in the gym one day and a, 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 a swimmer, male swimmer came through from Russia. He was here training with our swim team. And I asked him about Russia. He says, I'm not going back there. He says, I'm going to get that out of there. I'm coming here. So these players who are representing Russia and Belarus, since it's an individual sport, they can leave, okay? They can leave Russia. They can leave Belarus, and they can become expatriates. 
possible. Some do, some don't. So I can understand Wilmington taking the position it took. It's unfortunate, but that's how complicated this is, particularly. So tennis is an individual sport. You can make an individual decision. It's not like you're a member of the USA track team. That, that, that's different. You can't go out on your own and separate yourself from that and, and uh, you know, run around the local track and get accolades and all that. But you can as a tennis player. And you can in many of these individualized sports. Uh, I can remember um, that uh, the great heavyweight boxers from Ukraine right now are the champions, are not leaving Ukraine. They're, they're going to fight it out with the Russians. They're the heavyweight the brothers, those two brothers, big, strong guys, are not leaving. Uh, they're going to stick it out and they're going to slug it out because the analysis you read, and I think this is pretty comparable to a lot of uh, other wars we've seen, because you remember I made the A-pluses in military strategy in military school. We can't let Russia take over Ukraine. We, by that, I mean freedom-loving people who have blood in the soil of that Europe can't let this happen. But we're letting it happen. We're letting it happen. And we're destroying women and children. That's what really irks me. And that's what really bothers me. If we were just going after other military people, but you know something, I got to tell you, being a Southerner, I got to tell you now, the parallels between the way Russia is fighting Ukraine and the way the North fought the South in our Civil War are so striking, it's in incredible. You know, if I've talked about this with you, if Lee had not gone to Gettysburg, Lincoln would never have been able to rally Northerners against the South. Because to do that, the Northerners had to invade the South. You remember, the South was a country, a separate country. It based on agrarian principles, anti-industrial, more of you know, more rule, believed in the, the in a whole different lifestyle than the North, didn't have the big cities, didn't want the big cities, and wanted to have a different style of life. It's not too much unlike what's going on right now, where all of a sudden you're seeing rural areas bulldozed down for some kind of intense commercial development. I mean, what's going on with that, you know? You're not going to get that, that land back that sustains you, that grows your food, that gives you your family identity. Nobody's going to have a family identity living on a piece of land with 500 other people stacked on top of each other on that land. But that's not, that's not the fashion we have right now. So this is another thing. The North, in order for Lincoln to finally find somebody who would truly be as brutal as he needed to be, he had to find a general who would do that, and he finally found Grant. And once he found Grant, he had a guy who would go in and destroy and burn, every, burn Atlanta, burn the entire city, as the Northerners did. Just burn it to the ground to make a point, to put fear in civilians. Come into your country and burn your city to the ground, okay? Well, Russia right now, is doing the very same thing. It just came off the press a couple of days ago. I don't have the article in front of me. I got it in my mind. Putin has gone and found the most violent, most brutal general he can possibly find. And he has told that general, you go destroy. I don't care how many of our men we lose. And that was the same thing with Grant. Grant was willing to lose seven Yankees to kill one rebel, okay? Seven to one. Look it up. Putin doing the same thing. I don't care if we lose 20,000 of our men to kill a 1,000 of theirs. You keep it up until we have won. You wait and see. We're going to have to do something about that. We can't stand by and let that happen. But that's what is lining up and shaping up right now. Trust me. I've done a lot of research on it. Trust me. That's where it is headed. We'll be back tomorrow with the open line Friday. So if you want to call and chit chat about anything, 
We're going to open up the phone lines and see how it goes. Have a great day. Warthog Command Center out. <laughs>